X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I am Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon, recording from a new room. Well, I don't know if you'll be able to tell. It's a little more echoey in here. Hopefully it doesn't translate too badly in this cardioid microphone. It is Tuesday, October 6th. Today, back in the day, October 6th, 1917, activist Fannie Lou Hamer was born. The youngest of 20 children, at the age of 12, she left school to work on the cotton plantations in Montgomery County, Mississippi. In 1962, she attempted to register to vote, and the owner of the plantation where she worked threatened to evict her unless she retracted her application. She refused. She moved in with a family. White men shot 16 rounds into the home she was living in. No one was hurt, and Mrs. Hamer became even more influential. Here is her quote. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings? And today, back in the day, October 6th, 1927, the first non-silent movie was shown in theaters, The Jazz Singer. Now we just call them movies, but at the time, audio and film had not been synchronized, and The Jazz Singer was the first of its kind, featuring vocal recording which was synchronized with the lip movements of the person on screen. It ended the silent film era. The film debuted at Warner Brothers Theater, New York City, grossed over $2.6 million to the box office. And speaking of jazz singers, today, back in the day, October 6, 1989, singer Johnny Ray gave his very last performance in Salem, Oregon. Johnny Ray was a prolific musician in the 1950s, specializing in emotional music and what was viewed then as sexually suggestive performances. He was born in the Dalles in 1927, talented from a young age. He died of liver failure five months after his Salem performance. If your sweetheart sends a letter of goodbye No secret, you'll feel better behind a cloudy sky. So let your head down and go right on, baby, and cry. Today we will have your quick six news headlines and an interview with candidate for Metro Council, Chris Smith. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has launched a program to help Portlanders engage with police and city budget reform. In August, the City Council voted to put Hardesty's police reform measure on the November 2020 ballot. That's coming up really soon. That measure, if passed, would establish a new police oversight board. That new board would have more power to investigate and discipline officers accused of misconduct and violence. No police officers or people with family and law enforcement would be allowed to serve on the board. The measure aims to increase police accountability in a system that rarely sees punishment for officers after police violence. The measure is also just one step in a larger project of transforming community safety. It's a tool that helps Portlanders get in contact with local and state governments and have a say in the city's resource management. Currently, Rethink Portland is helping residents get involved with the fall budget monitoring process. There will be a community listening session for the fall budget process tonight, Tuesday, October 6th, and the City Council will vote on the fall budget monitoring process on October 26th. And in protest news, confusion lingers over the deputation of local police. I'll tell you some confusion. I thought it was deputization. We deputize. We don't depute. But anyway, we'll go with deputation. It at least is shorter. 
The city of Portland insists that its police force is no longer federally deputized or deputed. Ted Wheeler and the city attorney, Tracy Reeve, said the local officer should have only been deputized for one weekend where the Proud Boys were in town. But the U.S. attorney for Oregon, Billy Williams, not to be confused with the character who ran the Cloud City, insists the officers will stay federally deputized until the end of this year. The issue reflects complicated tensions between city leaders, local law enforcement, state police, and the Federal Department of Justice. That's Bill Barr, etc. It's a big reach of federal power to interfere in how the police commissioner and the county district attorney choose to deal with protest arrests. Unless the courts get involved, it seems like Portland police will have much more power to federally prosecute protesters arrested for crimes, no matter how small. And according to a spokesperson for the mayor, the current Portland police chief Chuck Lavelle gave the consent to federally deputize local officers. So although the mayor and Reeve have revoked their consent, it may not matter unless Chuck Lavelle does too. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. 288 new coronavirus cases yesterday. There have now been over 35,000, 35,049 since the pandemic began. Some silver lining, no new reported deaths. And Oregon could triple its coronavirus testing capacity this fall. The White House announced this week it would provide 100 million coronavirus tests to the states. There's new testing technology on the market. It's an antigen test that can provide results in just 15 minutes. Oregon officials say they expect to get up to 80,000 new tests per week. How those tests will be used is up to local governments. The increase in tests would let the state relax testing criteria and more efficiently tackle workplace outbreaks. Oregon officials will announce their plan for the new test next week. This will be a major stride for Oregon health officials after testing plummeted last month during the wildfires. And in Washington State, there have now been 90,276 cases and 7,622 deaths. In Seattle, the University of Washington is dealing with a coronavirus outbreak in its Greek system. you got to be careful with the parties. Whether it's at the Rose Garden at the White House, or if it's 163 students from 12 different fraternities and sororities in University of Washington who have contracted with the virus, you got to be careful. This is the second major outbreak for UW Greek life since June. University of Washington is partially open for classes. Classes with 50 or more students are taught remotely. While smaller classes, breathe it in, baby. Socially distant, but in person. C.C. Slaughter's, one of Portland's oldest gay bars, is closing after 39 years. The bar was a place where queer Portlanders could gather for drinks, dancing, and drag shows. It's a major blow to the city's LGBTQ community at a time when gay bars are slowly disappearing. In 1976, there were 2,500 gay bars in the United States alone. In 2019, there were only 1,400 gay bars worldwide. Lesbian bars, in particular, are suffering. It is, of course, good news that bars are less low-key segregated than they have been in the past. And although there are political and economic issues threatening gay bars in America, CC's is the latest casualty of the pandemic. They opened under socially distant guidelines in June, but it just wasn't enough to keep the downtown nightclub afloat. The bars closed indefinitely. The owner hopes to reopen someday, especially if Congress approves more PPP money. Commissioner Amanda Fritz has made an endorsement in the mayor's race, and she is endorsing... The mayor. Fritz stated she was worried about the high turnover in city and police leadership. She said she'd rather see Wheeler continue as mayor and learn from his experiences. Fritz will not continue on the city council next year. She is retiring. She served on the council for 12 years, is currently the longest tenured member of the board. Commissioners Chloe Udaly and Dan Ryan haven't made endorsements in the mayoral race. Joanne Hardesty endorsed Wheeler in the primary, but hasn't made that endorsement in the general election. 
She cited what she described as its poor job as police commissioner during a time when anti-racist protesters and police have faced off during demonstrations nearly every night. Hardesty's so far stayed out of the mayoral race. And speaking of the mayor's race, DHM Research just published a new poll funded by the Portland Business Alliance, and they found 41% of voters plan to vote for challenger Sarah Iannarone, while 30% prefer Wheeler. Remember, the mayor was within a whisker of winning it in the primary. Right now, 16% plan to write in a candidate such as Teresa Rayford. 13% remain undecided. OHSU is looking for an exemption from Metro's transportation tax. The tax is part of a big transportation measure that would improve public transit, increase safety infrastructure, and make some investments in bike and pedestrian safety. The measure would be funded by a payroll tax up to 0.75% of larger employers' payrolls. Local governments, which employ thousands of people, are already exempted from the proposed tax, and OHSU is one of the region's largest employers. They would like to be treated like a local government and also be exempt. 2% of the public university's funding comes from taxpayers. Does that mean it qualifies as part of state or local government? Metro hasn't answered that clearly yet. The Metro transportation measure will be on the ballot this November. And that actually means this October. It's just due in November, but you should probably mail it in before November comes here. And some good news. The Portland Dance Film Festival is continuing all week. The festival will be entirely virtual, screening performances as well as documentaries about dancers and choreographers. There will also be virtual workshops exploring movement. You can dance in your living room, on your porch. And on your Zoom screen, more information online at portlanddancefilmfest.com. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. And now we have an interview with Chris Smith, who is a candidate running for Metro Council District 5 in North and Northeast Portland. Chris will be discussing his ideas for bettering the transportation in Portland. Here's Chris Smith speaking with X-Ray's Andy Lindbergh. With a controversial transportation ballot measure on the horizon, there's more interest in the open Metro Council seat than ever. Chris Smith is one of those hopefuls. A longtime transportation activist in Portland, Smith has been a member of the Portland Planning and Sustainability Commission, the Metro Policy Advisory Committee, and many other transportation-focused groups. He also runs the blog Portland Transport. Chris, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate you making the space. Not a problem. So let's let's jump in and 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 talk about uh, some of the the things that are going on right now, and then we'll talk about Metro in general and and your candidacy. Um, what are North Portland's greatest transportation needs right now? Uh, you know, I think if, when we think about North Portland, uh, I tend to think about the Lombard Corridor, um, which, of course, is uh, a major arterial. Uh, there's also a lot of freight activity in North Portland uh, and some uh, definite conditions where there are uh, unsafe conditions for anybody who's not in you know, a heavy vehicle. So uh, missing sidewalks, uh, poor bicycle infrastructure, um, It'd be nice at some point in the future to get light rail out to St. John's. Uh, you know, we, we get up to Kenton, but uh, mm-hmm. we got to serve the rest of the peninsula eventually. Um, so, you know, District 5 is actually probably better off than much of the region in that uh, District 5 has relatively complete street grids. Uh, most of the areas have sidewalks, so there are definitely some exceptions. Um, so um, there's a new metro transportation uh, measure uh, coming up. C- 
Can you can you talk briefly about what that measure is and 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 let us know your thoughts about uh, does it go too far? Does it not go far enough? Uh, what's what's up with that with the new uh, metro transportation measure? Sure. Um, so just to be upfront, uh, I am supporting the measure. I'm urging folks voting for me to also vote for the measure. It's not perfect. If I were designing. Uh, a transportation measure, it would have um, less investment in drive alone auto trips and more investment in more sustainable forms of transportation. But on the whole, I think it moves us forward. And when I think about evaluating a measure like this, uh, I look at really four factors. What does it do for mobility and access? So, you know, does it help people get to their jobs or to school or to their daily life needs? Um, does it improve equity? Does mm. it improve safety? Uh, and then, of course, climate is a huge lens for me. I'm running as a grassroots climate champion. Um, and it really, it was that last factor, climate, that made me think the most about this measure. The modeling suggests that uh, the set of investments in this measure are essentially carbon neutral. Uh, obviously, I would prefer that we were uh, you know, helping reduce carbon to a greater degree uh, with this measure. But I, when I look out and see what else is likely to happen in the region in terms of, uh, you know, statewide policy like cap and trade or something else that, you know, uh, will probably create some economic incentives to drive less. Uh, when I look at what I think is likely in our future, some form of regional congestion pricing, uh, and you couple these investments with those kind of policies, uh, and, and the great thing about this package is it does create other choices for people to make other than driving alone. So it, mm -hmm. you know, it builds a lot of bike lanes. Uh, builds a lot of sidewalks, uh, makes it uh, easier for transit to get around traffic congestion. So, you know, things like uh, Q bypass jump lanes. So when, you know, when the traffic stops at the red light, the, uh, the bus can go around okay. cars and get a head start uh, when the light turns green. Um, so I think, it, you know, when you look at the total set of things that are likely to happen, this is a good thing for climate. Um, but I think it scores really big on a couple other factors. So a huge improvement in equity. Most of the investments are in parts of the region that have uh, traditionally been underserved with transportation infrastructure and have high concentrations of BIPOC folks and lower income folks uh, and big improvements in safety, uh, sidewalks, uh, crossing treatments so people can you know, get across the street safely. And we know particularly in East Portland where there are a lot of investments this measure, uh, or East County in general, uh, a lot of folks get killed on a much too regular basis because it's just not safe to cross the street. So what what are the arguments against this measure, and, and how do you counter them? Yeah, it's fascinating because, uh, of course, business is running the campaign against the measure. It's big businesses uh, because the measure only taxes businesses that have more than 25 employees. So it's Nike and other very large employers in the region uh, who are opposing this. Um, yeah, I think there's a fair question that can be asked of should we be doing this in the middle of a pandemic and uh, probably more importantly, a recession uh, driven by the pandemic. Um, and I think you could ask the question of is the revenue raising mechanism appropriate? So let me take both of those. Okay. Um, you know, we will not start collecting taxes uh, to fund this until 2022. So I certainly hope the worst of the recession will be over by then. But mm -hmm. also traditionally, uh, transportation measures are uh, stimulus. Uh, so they create jobs, help fuel the economy. Uh, this measure is 
projected, depending on how you count, to create you know anywhere from 17 to 21 to 37,000 jobs. Different people have different estimating mechanisms. There's a piece of the limit week this morning that talks about that, but uh, it will be creating jobs, and those are typically good family wage jobs. Um, so I think even if you uh, are worried about the recession, I think you can say this is a you know, a traditional Keynesian investment to help stimulate the economy. Um, the revenue mechanism, you know, it's a payroll tax, um, and let's be honest and call it that. It's a tax on payrolls. Okay. Um, there's some efforts to portray it as a quote-unquote business tax, but you know, the, the mechanism is a payroll tax. Um, you know, that wouldn't be my first choice. You know, in a perfect world, this would be funded by a carbon tax. Uh, mm-hmm. It could help uh, reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, but the fact is that um, Metro did not have a lot of good choices left when it came time to to put this on the ballot. Uh, Metro used a lot of its income taxing authority on the homeless services measure this spring, which I think absolutely appropriate. I campaigned for that. Mm-hmm. Um, believe it was a good investment. Uh, the only other real uh, available choice would have been an, an auto registration fee. Uh, and while that you know uh, has some policy nexus, because of course it's actually a user fee on the people who are driving. Yeah. The fact is that it's, it's horribly regressive. You pay the same registration fee for a clunker as you do for a $75,000 luxury vehicle. Yeah. Um, Metro did not have the legislative authority to scale this by the size of the vehicle or the price of the vehicle or any other factor. They only had the opportunity to do a, uh, a flat fee uh, on motor vehicles. So I think it's appropriate that they didn't go that way. Uh, and that left the payroll tax. Um, so it is what we have available. Um, and, you know, I've been, uh, as you noted, I've been a transportation activist for several decades now. And we've been having conversations about the fact that we're underinvested in transportation infrastructure in this region, whether you like driving or like bikes or like walking um, or transit. Uh, we're, we're underinvested, and we have been for several decades. Uh, so I've been in conversations for 15 years plus uh, about, you know, how we can pull together uh, a regional package. And I give a lot of credit to the leadership that put this in place. Uh, they went out to the community. They had a, you know, a huge task force that worked on this and shaped it. And then there's been advocacy by a variety of um, organizations and coalitions, uh, particularly BIPOC organizations, to help improve this. So the, the package of investments that's on the ballot is much better than you know what we started with as a starting point. Uh, and I want to emphasize that this is not just building things. This is all also programmatic. So there are programs, for example, like Youth Pass, uh, which is the you know, the ability of our high school aged youth to uh, to ride the bus or the train for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that started in Portland. Uh, actually, started in the Portland Public School District a uh, little over ten years ago. Uh, I've been a big supporter of that. I put language in the Portland plan, which is the city's strategic plan, to expand that beyond PPS, and you know, we have managed to get it to the point where all the school districts uh, that, that are uh, in Portland, you know, the five or six districts that touch Portland in some way, uh, have youth pass, and now this will expand it to the entire region, uh, and we hope it will eventually also be able to uh, cover um, middle school age children uh, as well, so that we can you know, nice. get our youth uh, in the habit of riding transit make it easier for them to get to and from school as well as after-school activities and other things. So uh, one of the benefits of this is that instead of being just a school year program, it'll be year-round. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff in this measure. Well, and, and I, I appreciate uh, clearly hearing your, your transportation expertise coming through. Um, let's talk about your, your candidacy for this um, Metro Council seat. What, what sets you apart 
as as a candidate? So I'm running primarily as a grassroots climate champion, uh, and you know, the, the one and two issues in my campaign are climate and then housing, because obviously we have a housing crisis in this region, and I think then the, the grassroots part, uh, I've been a campaign finance reformer for more than two decades since I helped write a city club report uh, back in the year 2000 on uh, the first ballot measure that would propose the public campaign finance system. So I know that the corrosive impact that big money has uh, on not just our elections, but the way we govern ourselves in this state. Um, so while there are no statutory campaign finance limits for Metro, um, I am voluntarily limiting contributions in my campaign to $500. And in fact, my campaign is uh, is fueled by more than 500 individual donors. Um, you know, I paid attention to the fact that the voters in my district, which is mostly in Portland, the district, district five goes from uh, Cedar Mill uh, in Washington County, uh, all the way out to uh, Northeast 122nd uh, in Portland, and it's everything north of the freeway, so north of Highway 26 on the west side and north of 84 on the east side. That's a uh, fascinating so district. district. A big district, about 250,000 uh, people. Um, but the voters are mostly in Portland, and mm-hmm. Portland, voters in Portland have twice voted for uh, finance limits, once uh, for $500 limits for city elections, uh, and again for $500 limits for county elections. They haven't had a chance to have that vote yet for Metro. Maybe that's something we can facilitate uh, the next four years if I'm elected. Uh, but I heard loud and clear that they don't want to see big money in their elections, and I'm abiding by that. Nice. So uh, that's uh, what a fascinating district uh, to, to represent. Um, and, you know, with your, uh, a, a, a portion of your experience dealing with, with policy is your experience on the Planning and Sustainability Commission. Um, what lessons did you learn there, um, and, and how would you uh, bring those, those lessons to uh, your uh, Metro Council uh, seat? Uh, you know, I think one of the, the biggest lessons I've learned is about equity and racism. You know, during the 11 years that I've served on the Planning and Sustainability Commission, uh, we basically rewrote all of Portland's major policies uh, centering them on equity, starting with the Portland plan, which, as I said, was the strategic plan for the city created back when Sam Adams was mayor, uh, and then that was implemented in the comprehensive plan and a slew of other plans uh, and you know, the the consistent effort through all that was to center equity uh, as you know, key to all our policies. And I think the wake-up call for me has been to realize that that wasn't enough. That in fact, we need to be anti-racist in our policies. It's not just enough to be equitable. We have to be actively anti-racist. We're beginning to learn how to do that. We have some, uh, some great new commissioners who have uh, some experience uh, representing BIPOC groups and other groups uh, for whom anti-racism is a, is a key foundation principle. Uh, I'm learning from them, uh, continuing to learn how to be anti-racist. would love to take that experience to Metro. But I think we've also learned to apply uh, those equity principles along the way. So, you know, huge project that I was uh, happy to be involved in and be a thought leader was the residential infill project. Mm. And, you know, that's the policy that says that, uh, you know, anywhere you could build a single-family house in Portland, uh, you can now do a duplex or a triplex or even a quadplex and uh, in some special situations where you've got affordability, you can go up to six units. 
And a huge part of that was to uh, erase the history of exclusionary zoning in Portland. So a lot of our single-family neighborhoods were basically created uh, in the 40s and 50s in, in the zoning code then with the principle of excluding people of color. Um, you, know, the code that you, you don't see yeah. that language in the code, but that is absolutely the effect and was absolutely the, the intent. And, you know, uh, I don't believe the people who live there now uh, believe they're being racist and living in their homes, but they are benefiting from the, the legacy of that policy. And uh, with residential infill, you know, I was one of the folks who led the charge to go from duplexes to quadplexes uh, and also to expand it to larger parts of the city. Um, it not only helps solve our housing problems, although it's certainly not, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's one of many tools uh, that we need to have adequate housing and, uh, you know, a reasonable level of affordability in Portland. But it, it also uh, erases that history. Well, erases is probably a strong term. Um, yeah. Makes clear that... Yeah. Acknowledges. <laughs> right. Acknowledges and, uh, and turns around the policy of that exclusionary zoning. Well, thank you for your your work on that. Um, uh, we've we've only got a couple more minutes, so I, I want to ask your your thoughts on uh, a few of the kind of headline grabbing transportation uh, projects that are in process or in discussion. Um, what's what's the the I five expansion, and um, maybe you can just really briefly uh, sum that up and 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 let us know what what's the deal with that. Sure. So that project is proposed by ODOT to add uh, about a mile of additional lanes in each direction uh, near the, the Rose Quarter area, uh, with, with, you know, being sold as an attempt to ease a bottleneck. Um, I was the first public official uh, to vote against that project and a vote on the Planning Commission in 2012. Uh, and in 2017, I helped form the organization No More Freeways to oppose it. Uh, and the reason for that is that we know that urban freeway expansion simply doesn't work to solve congestion. Uh, the phenomenon known as induced demand, uh, which is the idea that if you build new transportation infrastructure, uh, new development, new users will follow that, and you wind up with just as much congestion, if not more, after a few years. So you know, it will not solve the congestion problem. And it's going to expand the freeway into both the school, the Harriet Tubman Middle School, mm-hmm. uh, which, as we know, has a high concentration of BIPOC youth. And in the other direction, it will expand it into a park to the East Bank Esplanade. And in fact, it will have to uh, drop support columns into the Willamette River, uh, which means we'll have an impact on fish and other things. It's, it's just a silly idea, and it's uh, unfortunately rooted in the fact that, that ODOT has not moved behind uh, the build, build, build paradigms of the 50s. The only thing that's going to help urban freeway congestion is congestion pricing. We have to manage the demand. We can't simply plan to build to accommodate new demand. Uh, the, that new demand never stops, and we destroy our city in the process. So another uh, big project that uh, comes and goes is the Interstate Bridge project uh, on uh, I-5. Uh, what's what's the bottleneck there, and 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 how would you, as a metro council member, uh, uh, advise that project in it, in moving forward? Sure, and I really see that as uh, of one piece with the, the Rosequater project. It's, we have to think about the whole corridor, and by opposing Rosequater, I think we're trying to instill the values in the planning process that we need. So there are a lot of arguments replace the I-5 bridges. Uh, you know, they're not seismically resilient. They don't have shoulders. So that's a safety issue. Uh, they're horrible uh, if you're on a bike or a pedestrian to try and cross the river that way. 
um, and we don't have uh, a good transit connection across the river. So I'd be happy to talk about uh, a replacement uh, that addresses those issues. You know, we should have good bike pad connectivity. We should absolutely have high capacity transit crossing the river. Um, we should probably have you know, an arterial lane to get to uh, Hayden Island without having you know, to get on the freeway to go to the grocery store if you live on Hayden Island. Um, but we can't be using the values of we have to accommodate more and more cars. So, you know, my bottom sure. line would be that when the project is done, uh, we should have fewer drive-alone auto trips than we have now. So that means that demand management uh, has to be a core value of the project. Uh, I don't know that, uh, that ODOT is there uh, on that value, but uh, I was certainly part of you know, getting elected to District 5, which the bridge is in, uh, is uh, to have a seat at the table for that discussion because uh, it needs to reflect our climate values. Thank you. Uh, uh, I appreciate your your commitment to to serve our community by running for the open uh, metro council seat. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your policies and candidacy? Uh, my website is christophermetro.com, and we have uh, uh, that same Christopher Metro handle on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So come check us out. All right. Thank you, Chris Smith. Thanks for uh, talking transportation uh, with us this morning on uh, X-Ray. And uh, again, you can uh, uh, look out for more information about uh, Chris and and, uh, his candidacy on the web. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks very much. You got it. Thanks to Chris for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.